the cold Slurpee in the morning was something that it, 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 it energized me in a fake way, but it's what I felt. I said, this is something that's giving me energy and it's really cold and it's really sweet and it's really delicious. So what can I substitute that's healthy? And so what I started doing was smoothies because a smoothie is delicious, it's cold, it's energizing. And so that's what I started in that I changed that ritual of a cold, sweet, energizing morning beverage to a smoothie. It was a fruit smoothie from Jamba Juice. I didn't have a Vitamix at the time. And then I kept upping my game and it's like, well, what's the next step? Well, so instead of a fruit smoothie, how about a green smoothie? Well, at first I couldn't do green smoothies because when you're as toxic as I was on the inside, you don't want to think you want as kale or green vegetables. But I was able to put a little cocoa powder in my green smoothies, the ones with spinach, and those tasted pretty good. And, you know, I just kept upgrading my choices. And then it became a green smoothie without cocoa powder. And then instead of uh, smoothies, it became actually eating the vegetables. So I think, I think you know, when people look at me now and they read my book, The Secret Ultimate Weight Loss, it looks like I was an overnight success, but I was an overnight success that took 52 years in the making. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ. We are athletes and coaches on a mission to wake up and shake up the world of endurance sports with raising awareness of the performance-enhancing effects of living a mindful life, eating a whole foods plant-based diet, and training the mind through the practice of meditation. When we start paying more attention to what we are doing while we are doing it, we open ourselves to the power of choice because we shine a light on what is no longer serving us. Whether that be in our sport, our food choices, relationships, or profession, being more mindful puts us ahead of our patterns and back in charge of our life. Our guest today is Chef AJ, an amazing example of someone who has overcome great obstacles, shifted non-serving habits, and is back in charge. She has most definitely ridden the waves of life, highs and lows, traumas and joys, all to find herself serving great purpose in the realm of whole, nutrient-dense, plant-based food. She has been eating an animal product-free diet for over 43 years, but for many years, that did not equal health. Chef AJ is the host of the television series Healthy Living with Chef AJ, which airs on Foodie TV. She is a chef, culinary instructor, and professional speaker. She is the author of Unprocessed, How to Achieve Vibrant Health and Your Ideal Weight, and The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, a revolutionary approach to conquer cravings, overcome food addiction, and lose weight without going hungry, and her latest ebook, A Date with Dessert. She has helped thousands of people transform their relationship with food, and she has a very rich story that we're excited to dive into. Chef AJ, welcome to the show. Thank you. We first heard you on Rich's podcast in, I think it was 2013, and we didn't even have a podcast yet, but there was something that was already telling us we would, and you were on our early list even before we had the podcast. And so even though we've been going now for five years, uh, and there's people that you know we had thought of so early on, but we just trust timing, and we trust you know the the growth that we needed to get through and to uh, in order to align with these certain guests. So you're one of them, and uh, we're so glad to have you here with us today. Um, Thank you. So where I want to jump in is, um, and I think I got this uh, 
these words right off your website about, uh, or maybe it was actually reading through one of the blog posts that Rich wrote, but um, in obese junk food vegan is uh, how I have um, heard you've been described in the past. And so what I would love to dive into is just what does that look like? What is the day in the life of an obese junk food vegan look like? Um, I think that this is such an important um, delineation that we make this discernment that vegan doesn't always equal healthy and that you can be very unhealthy on a vegan diet. You absolutely can. And while I can't speak for all obese junk food vegans out there, <laughs> past or present or future, I can only speak for myself. I was obese before I was vegan. So that I think I, I don't want people to think, oh, I adopted a vegan diet and then I became obese. Okay. My weight did not change because when I became vegan on September 1st, 1977, when I was a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania, all I simply did was remove animal products from my diet. And as, as unhealthy as animal products are, they are not really all that high in caloric density when you think about it. I mean, they're higher in caloric density, of course, than fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. But when you think about it, they're about a third the caloric density of nuts and about a fourth the caloric density of oil. So they're not, quote, that fattening. So in other words, yes, things like cheese, dairy, you know, there's certain types of animal products, but like... Meat is what not not the reason I was fat. I was fat because of processed food from the age of five. Sugar, flour, you know, things like that. Foods that don't exist in nature. So for me, being both a sugar and a caffeine addict, what my days looked like until I was about 43 years old was Coke Slurpee for breakfast. Yeah, it's really weird because I didn't, it's funny when people say, oh, you don't eat breakfast. I never ate breakfast unless you count a Coke Slurpee for breakfast. That was my breakfast. It was uh, delicious and it was icy cold. And when 7-Eleven was out of Coke, that flavor, I would yell at the manager and have to go to drive to another 7-Eleven. I was just so addicted. And it wasn't just the Coke Slurpee, but I would put extra sugar and I would put eight pumps of vanilla syrup in because, you know, they had they sold coffee. They still do at 7-Eleven. They had all those hazelnut, all those different flavors. And so, I mean, I was the true inventor of vanilla Coke, guys. That was me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it had to be exactly eight pumps, not seven, not nine. I could tell the difference. And so that would be my breakfast. And that would hold me for a few hours until, quote, lunch when I would go back to 7-Eleven for a Dr. Pepper Big Gulp. It was about 48 ounces because Back in the day, they didn't have the 256-ounce size or whatever that gigantic one they, they have today. I'm not even sure if they had free refills uh, when I was a, a user and abuser. And so, yeah, that, you know, right there, I think I think I had, I calculated once that I had probably over a thousand calories of my day just in beverages, uh, Slurpee and between the Slurpee and the Dr. Pepper. And so how, food, there wasn't much food. Well, I mean, what, what we would consider food because I, I basically just ate dessert. I mean, I don't know how I got, you know, to be, I mean, you know, I look back, I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm laughing now, but it's really quite sad that nobody intervened and said, Hey, you're not eating anything that closely resembles food because I was, you know, I don't like the word food addict because you can't be addicted to food, but you can be addicted to processed food and refined carbohydrates. And so, you know, my sugar addiction was so bad that if it wasn't something very high in sugar, I just had no interest in it. So I ate a lot of dessert, candies, cakes, cookies, pies, ice cream, albeit vegan. But that was my food supply. I, I you know, I ate a little bit of broccoli here and there. And I don't know why. I think what broccoli did was save me from full-blown colon cancer. Because really, the reason I, you know, 
I didn't change my diet because like I was trying to be this healthy person. I was just trying not to have surgery. And what happened to me is when I was 43 years old or just shortly before my 43rd birthday, it was actually New Year's Day. And I woke up and after using the bathroom in the morning, I was bleeding very badly. And at the time I had an HMO and they wouldn't do a colonoscopy, which would have been more effective probably, but they did do a sigmoidoscopy and they said that my colon was riddled with polyps, the kind that always become cancer if not removed. I believe they're called edematous polyps. And they couldn't remove them because they said I had a dirty colon. Now, it wasn't because I didn't do the prep, because the prep is supposed to clean you out. But if you haven't been eating any fiber for 43 years, trust me, your colon's probably pretty dirty. And so they couldn't remove the polyps, but they were able to take pictures of them and ascertain their size and location. And the doctor had said, well, you, you know, you're, you're going to have to have like surgery, like real surgery, like where they cut you open. And I got really freaked out because I am a very phobic patient with procedures. And it's one thing, colonoscopy, it's not that invasive compared to like actual cunning surgery where they have to anesthetize you. I was 19 years old when I was having a routine operation that was supposed to be done as an outpatient. And I developed an allergic reaction to the anesthesia. And I left the hospital like months later. <laughs> and I was very close to being put on a ventilator and being resuscitated. And I'll I can't forget that. And so in a way, it's a good thing because it keeps me from having pretty much anything done to me. <laughs> Which, you know, and it's funny because in my 60s now, and I'm like, boy, I had sure like a little plastic surgery here and there. But it's like, no, because I'm just too, they won't do it without anesthesia. You know, you can't get a total facelift without it. It's not possible. So it kind of keeps me grounded but by having this. It's really, it's really a true phobia. It's an unnatural fear of anesthesia and nobody can do anything about it. I've tried having like there, it just can't do it. So anyway, I, I was willing to do anything, even eat healthy to, to, to not die. And so I went to a place called the Optimum Health Institute. It, it's located in Lemon Grove, California, near San Diego. And there's also another branch in Austin, Texas. I went to the San Diego one on July 6th, 2003. And I remember I lived in LA at the time, so I took the train down and a cab picked me up at uh, the train station. And I said, can we go to 7-Eleven first? Because I heard that if you're caught with contraband, they kick you out. It was only $875 a week, which is it's pretty reasonable for a quote spa. It's not really a spa spa, but a healing center. And I remember getting like my, what was to be my last Coke Slurpee and last Dr. Pepper and then being dropped off at this place where for the first time people said what you eat actually matters. Nobody said that to me in 43 years. Nobody, not a doctor, not a family member, really nobody. I mean, you know, Jacqueline might've said it on TV, but I, you know, I, it just wasn't something that people really talked about much in the 60s, 70s, 80s, at least not my, not the people I knew. And it was really profound because people there were healing from all kinds of diseases that were supposedly uncurable. They would come back every Friday and give testimonials. And there were people there that had things like brain cancer and lupus and Lyme's disease. And they said that how when they changed their diet to basically, now at Optimum Health, it happens to be raw. I don't know if you have to be 100% raw to heal, but for a, it is a very effective way to heal. But these people were saying that since they adopted this diet, they reversed their disease. And I said, wow, well, this, you know, I thought this was great. This will be a piece of kale for me because I really don't have cancer yet. I have, they called it pre-cancer. So I adopted their diet and it was really hard at first because when you're a sugar addict or just like when you're a caffeine addict too, I was both. It's very hard to go without the drugs of sugar and caffeine, 
so it was hard. I remember crying a lot the first few days and I, I would call my, it, they didn't allow cell, I don't remember if they didn't allow cell phones or I didn't have a cell phone then, but I remember using the payphone every night and calling both my husband and my sister separately. I'm like, please come get me. It's like, I can't do this, you know, cause I was detoxing. That was the thing. And they give you plenty of nutritious food. It just doesn't have any sugar or oil or salt or chemicals or caffeine. And I remember at the end of the eight days, I was very, very calm. It was, I think it was the calmest I'd ever been in my life because sugar and caffeine don't, don't make you feel very good. You get used to the way you feel and you think that's normal. But when you get off drugs, you never know how good you feel off drugs until you get off drugs. But the problem is drugs are hard to get off. So a lot of people never have the opportunity to feel what I feel, what I felt back then. And it doesn't mean it's easy, but it, it was definitely worth it. And yeah, I had some slips and slides afterwards. Uh, yeah, I won about two years, like, like almost perfect, but it's very hard living in the society we live in to not get sucked back into what Dr. Alan Goldhammer, Dr. Doug Lyle call the pleasure trap of these alluring uh, drug-like foods and substances and things like that. And so, yeah, that, that's my story. So I really probably wouldn't have changed if I didn't have this diagnosis. Uh, but it turned out to be, as most things that are negative at first, the greatest blessing. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were sucking down that Slurpee going to the Optimal Wellness Center, did you, were you, were you just, were you scared were, that like, what was life going to be like without that? Like how you were going to survive or were you just in denial? Like, I'm just going to suck this down and, you know, get better. Well, I, you know, I'm very, I have a lot of ingenuity and I, I just figured there, there you know, I, there's got to be a way, you know, there's got to be a way to beat the system and yeah. still get healthy and still, you know, have my little uh, drugs of choice. And, you know, I learned so much there. And, and it's also helpful, like when you're to not do things alone, I think, especially when you're an addict and when you have a bunch of people doing the same experience, there were 300 people there and a lot of them were detoxing too. And also the education, see, to me, if you show me the evidence then that to me really, really makes makes a very big difference. And I remember one of the classes, we have classes there all day from 7 a.m. I think till almost 9 p.m. And one of the classes, I think his name was Dr. Bob. He was this wonderful psychologist. And I, I, can't, I wish I could remember it more deeply and profoundly now, but basically I basically had a breakup with the Slurpees and the Dr. Peppers. We did some kind of role playing or something and it, you know, it, it, Listen, you know, your people are deluding themselves when they think they can uh, recover from an addiction and keep the addictive substance in. It's just that is, I just don't see how moderation works for addictions. I mean, you know, maybe there's that one alcoholic out there that at some point learned to drink moderately, but for the most part, addiction is pretty black and white. And I think that's why I resonated with Rich Roll so much on both of his podcasts that I did because he really got it because he was uh, an alcoholic, you know? And so he, he, he understood that, you know, for some people, these foods can have the same effect. Yeah. And it's, it's very simple, but you know, gosh, such a scary thing to think about the abstinence of essentially your solution, right? Like the, for an alcoholic, the alcohol is the solution, not, not the problem. It's, it's what's underneath that you need to medicate and, or, you know, get all that sugar in so that you can feel a different way. Um, and I swear, I remember like exactly where I was. I think I was on a run and I was listening to you on that podcast. We were living in Rhode Island at the time. And, um, and I remember you saying like the only solution is abstinence, like just, no more. There's no moderation for an addict. It's got to be a hundred percent 
out of your life. And I think the, the simple thing, you know, when we're talking about food, sugar, processed foods, things like that, is just getting them out of the house because your environment is so strong. Like your environment is stronger than your will. So if you've got the things in the house that are your drug, you've got to get them out of the house. I agree with you 100%. And this is where people don't like what I have to say. And by the way, I did not make this up. I learned this from all the wonderful doctors I've interviewed, particularly Dr. Doug Lyle, is that your environment is the number one predictor of your success, whatever the problem is, whether it's your relationship or, or, or foods, things like that. And that's why I coined a saying about 10 years ago, if it's in your house, it's in your mouth. It's not a question of if you will eat it, only when. Because, you know, willpower is only required if you have to make a decision. And it gets depleted throughout the day. And you don't have to decide to not eat something that isn't there. And having a clean environment, to me, is the most important thing for somebody that's trying to affect permanent dietary or lifestyle change. People that are really understanding of addiction, like when it comes to drugs and alcohol, I think they know this on some level, especially if they've been to a rehab place. You don't get out of Betty Ford and then go back to your job as a bartender. And I don't know, I, I'm not I don't know any alcoholics that have been successful keeping alcohol in their house for when company comes. This is pretty, pretty obvious to most people that suffer from addictions. But with food, it's not as black and white in that People have more vulnerabilities and less vulnerabilities. It's, it, it's, it's, it, there are some people that can moderate a little bit of the stuff, a little bit of the time. And plus, most people live with family members that aren't willing to get rid of the crap foods or the processed foods. See, the, here's the thing. Nobody needs to eat processed food. That's my, my message for 11 or 12 years since I wrote the book on processed is whether you want to be vegan or not, I think you should for lots of reasons. Nobody should be eating processed food, but we have so normalized it in this country because there's so much profit made from the processed food industry and people just, they don't realize how deleterious it is. It's sort of like, even when you smoke cigarettes, you don't get cancer after the first pack or even after the first year. It takes a long time for these diseases to show up. And it's the same thing with the processed food. And the thing is, is there are people that can moderate the use of alcohol and not become alcoholics. And there's some people that can moderate the use of these very unhealthy processed foods and not binge on them or overeat them or get a lifestyle disease or even be overweight. It doesn't mean they're healthy. It just means they they don't overconsume them. But for the majority of people, that's not true because if you look at the obesity rates in our country, over 70% of people are overweight and over 40% are obese. And those rates did not exist when processed food didn't exist. They don't, when you go to countries where there's no processed food, you don't see any obesity. So there is really is a correlation. But what happens is that processed food, it's, it's been around for most of our lifetimes now, not for our grandparents, but for us and probably for most of our parents' lives. It's so readily available. And by that, I mean, you go to Costco, obviously it's there, but what about when we go to Petco to get a leash for our dog? Why are they selling M&Ms at the register at Costco? I don't know any dogs that are supposed to be eat chocolate. Why at the hardware store is it there? Why at the craft store, at the fabric store? Every store you go to that's supposed to be a non-food store sells highly processed crap. So it's, it's, it's readily available. You know, every hospital has vending machines where they're selling it. It's socially acceptable. You know, you go to any soccer game, birthday party, things like that. And the worst part is it's very easily affordable. So why wouldn't somebody eat it? Because on some level, it's delicious and that, you know, it satisfies our 
our cravings for sugar, fat, and salt. It releases dopamine in the brain. And you know, you had mentioned about the why that people start using. W once you're an addict, you're not even using for that reason anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? It's what, what I mean. Maybe like when you took your first snort or drink, you're like, oh. <laughs> It's your, you've habituated. So basically, you're you're consuming or using the product just because you don't want to go through the detox and withdrawal. It, it's to, just to not feel bad. So you're not even thinking about any of the bad stuff that might have led up to your decision to do it. And I think for a lot of people, it, it, it's just that we're raised on these foods. And if you're the one that's susceptible, you're going to become addicted. And what that means is it's going to depend on how susceptible. I mean, there are people that can't go a whole day without the drug, you know, and there are people that can, but that once they get it, they overconsume it, meaning like they can't have one chip or one cookie, you know, think, think about the way it's even marketed. It's, it's almost like, you know, I kind of respect the processed food industry for telling the truth because they actually said, no one can eat just one. <laughs> once you pop, you just can't stop. So they're basically telling you, we created an addictive drug, or at least for some people that it's going to be addictive. And we're telling you right now, this is what it's going to be like. And that's what it's like for most people. The problem is, is that almost everybody knows that one person that isn't fat and sick. And they're like, well, you know, he can do it. Well, but he's not you. So don't compare yourself to some, you know, that's like a, you know, uh, somebody that's not an alcoholic saying to somebody who is, well, gosh, you know, I can have a drink and push myself away from the bar. What's the matter with you? So again, processed food is not food. Jack Lane said it over 80 years ago, if man made it, eat it. If man made it, don't. If God made it, eat it. If man made it, don't eat it. And that's what I've been on a mission to get people to stop eating it. It's just that you're called a weirdo. And too, you know, it's, think of it. If somebody that doesn't eat sugar is, I, I mean, I'm extreme. I'm very extreme because I don't eat sugar, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. But uh, who is it? Uh, is it Esselstyn that says, but, you know, cracking your chest open and, you know, taking a vein from your leg and putting it into your heart, like that's not extreme. Yeah, Dr. Dean Ornish said that. You know, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, yeah, it's wild. It, well, I think we just, go ahead. No, I was just say it's hard being different sometimes. I mean, for some people, I don't mind. <laughs> Tell us about it. Oh my, <laughs> oh my gosh. gosh. Nobody wants to hear about meditation right. and mindful. Well, I shouldn't say that. They do now, but it's a very tiny bit. You know, it's probably about the same amount of people that want to hear about a life without sugar. <laughs> <laughs> And caffeine, like sugar and caffeine. I think those are the two biggest like draws. And I'll, t I'll speak for myself, like weaning myself off of, of caffeine took a while. But a after I, I allowed the process to happen, I didn't cut it short after 30 days. Like after a year and a half of doing this, I understood that I was, you know, completely addicted to it. And then I started to slowly, you know, sample the, the half-calf, and then it was like, oh, well, I'll only have one a week, and then the whole process starts over again. And so if we're, my point here is like we, 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 we focus on the things that we, we truly crave, and then we build this belief and, and habit around it. And then when we're asked to not do it, or it's taken away from us, or we're the, we're the outside um, example of it, um, we, we cling to it. We're, we're like, oh, but this is my belief. You know, I have to, I can't just have just one. I have to have many. And we keep, we keep reinforcing this belief process. But the same thing can be said for what you did and just flip the switch. And I know it's not as easy as that, but it's a habit in the other direction, a habit of no sugar, the, the habit of no oil, which we've recently introduced. But it takes work. 
You know, it takes presence. It takes the ability to read a label on a, a food item at the store. And that means slowing down. And that means your day's interrupted because you, you're spending more time at the market. And we just don't want to be inconvenienced. And somehow it got tossed into this food system that we can't just have real food because it takes too long. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's called, uh, it, uh, Dr. Doug Lyle talks about it in The Pleasure Trap, the motivational triad. Seek energy, avoid pain, and conserve energy. So that is it's the ultimate all, it's, uh, conservation of energy, having, you know, a fast food drive through and, and you get you can get your whole day's worth of calories for very little money and very little effort. And that's just human nature. It's all animal nature to, to, to get the, they talk about it in Forks Over Knives, get the most amount of calories for the least amount of effort. Yeah. The Pleasure Trap was such a game changer. Mm. I read that a long time ago. And another book, which I know really affected you, was, what is it, Salt, Sugar, yeah. Fat? Yep. That's a crazy book. Can you speak about your experience? I, so, yeah, because I'm so honored that I finally, after 10 years, got Michael Moss to do an interview with me from his new book, Hook, which is kind of a follow-up to Salt, Sugar, and Fat. I so appreciate the work of people like Michael Moss and Dr. David Kessler, who wrote The End of Overeating, because... I felt like a crazy person for years. I remember even in my 20s saying to my medical doctor at the time, you know, I think I'm, a, I think I'm addicted to sugar. And he's like, I remember he had a diet soda on his desk, which, you know, that, the fake sugar is just as addictive, probably even more so, maybe even worse for you, at least from a microbiome standpoint. And he said, no, that's impossible. And I remember he ordered something called a glucose tolerance test for me. And it's a six-hour test where they draw your blood first thing in the morning and then I think every hour for six hours. But to prepare for the test, you have to carb load. And I'm not talking about potato, rice, beans, carb load. I'm talking like you have to eat like, it was, an extra, I don't know, like several thousand calories a day of basically sugar. And I remember going to my favorite bakery at the time. It was called Webby's on the corner of Laurel Canyon and Ventura Boulevard and getting my favorite cake, like oh, an entire birthday cake and like eating it like in one sitting. And, and like, I'm thinking like, well, that wasn't hard. Like, I mean, I really thought like, this is not normal to be able to eat an entire cake. And, and it, it's just, uh, it, it took years for people to really understand and believe in it really through science, through things like MRI showing that for some people, you know, sugar can be as addictive as cocaine or heroin that lights up the same parts of the brain. The sad thing is, is they knew this before. You know, and the process, see, I, I am not afraid to say the processed food industry is evil because they knew this. They came right after we found out that, to, well, no, I don't think anybody ever thought smoke, well, actually, I'm wrong. Smoking was considered good a long time ago. Doctors used to recommend it to their patients to calm your nerves. They, and doctors used to smoke. I, I, there were commercials with doctors smoking. But we, at a certain point, we realized smoking was hazardous to your health, so much so that the Surgeon General put little labels on every pack of cigarettes. Then the processed food industry was bought up by all these tobacco companies. And now they're buying up all the diet industry. It's like, it's the craziest thing. They're creating disease and then they're selling us a solution that doesn't work. So I really appreciate the work of Michael Moss and more people need to be aware of his work and read his book. That said, it doesn't mean people are going to stop eating this stuff. They're just going to be aware of those that want to be aware. But a lot of people would rather not know. I mean, think about it. Even with veganism, Paul McCartney said years ago, if slaughterhouses had windows, everyone would be vegetarian. Most people don't want to know where their meat comes from. And most people don't want to know that... 
these foods are addictive and, and bad for you because then they would have to change their behavior. And we know that changing human behavior is one of the, it's like t taking a, you know, an Atlantic ocean liner, you know, and then just saying, hey, no, turn around, right? No, it takes a, a gargantuan amount of will and effort and determination to change human behavior. And people just, they don't change, in my opinion, until the pain that's associated with change actually becomes less than the pain of staying the same. And that's that's what I see in most people. Most people don't wake up and say, hey, would it be a good idea if I ate right, slept right, exercised and meditate? I think I'll do that today. No, it's usually because they have a heart attack and they have cancer and then they realize that lifestyle habits play a role and then they have to adopt many of them or all of them at once. We're not really raised to be healthy and learn these things. Yeah, and you know, but you know what I've found is, and maybe you found the same thing. I think perhaps you have, is that when you do start eating cleaner, you know, more food that's actually food, um, less alcohol, you know, you start doing that little bit every day over a long period of time, and 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 shifting. If you're not in an extreme situation, is that then you start to crave higher levels of health. Like yeah. we're, I crave higher levels of health. Like what? I can cut out oil and I can even be better. What? I can look at added sugar and even be better. What? I can, you know, I can <laughs> have one cup of coffee and not three cups of coffee and I can feel better, huh? And so you start to, like once you turn the ship around, it's full speed ahead. Because I think that healthy, uh, you're happy, you feel good, you're kinder, you're more gentle. And I think that's aligned with who we truly are. I think there's so much pain and disharmony in poisoning ourselves um, that gets hidden by the drugs in, in food and the drugs that are actually drugs. But once you turn that ship around, like, it feels good to feel good. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Your health is your greatest wealth, but so many people have never felt good. And they yeah. don't know how bad they felt mm -hmm. until they start feeling good. That's why when you go to a place like I did, like the Optimum Health Institute or the True North Health Center, where you really start to clean up your diet, after that period of adjustment where you're detoxing, people feel really, really good. The thing is, is they can't always keep it up because of, and I, I, I the social influences, you know, oh, but all my friends drink, you know, how am I going to, you know, I can't, how can I not drink? You know, what am I supposed to do? The social aspect is what makes it hard. If we lived in the natural world, like we did in the stone age, it wouldn't be hard to avoid these substances because basically they didn't exist. And we wouldn't have the social pressure like we have today. And a lot of people, even being plant-based or vegan, a lot of people are like, well, I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one at my, you know. So a lot of people cave to the social pressure of wanting to be like everyone else, which I never understood because why do you want to be like everyone else if everyone else is fat and sick? I don't want to be like everyone else. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, what tools, um, as, when you left the Optimum, you know, you talked about uh, the community that you had there and the support you had there, and then you were done and then you had to go home. Like, what was that transition like and how did you, how did you stick with it for, for however long? Yeah, you were well, thank God I had my husband, you know, who was on board, at least with the vegan part. I remember, you know, I, the Optimum Health Institute was, is a raw diet. And like I said, knowing what I know today, I think for when somebody really has to heal quickly or wants to heal, I think that's probably unparalleled to be, do 100% raw. For me, 100% raw was not sustainable. I, I, I just, I personally couldn't do it. I did it for about two years. So for me, what, what that meant is I actually, at the time, there was a raw food delivery service and I ordered my meals from there. 
And because I didn't really know how to prepare them because in optimum health, that wasn't taught until the third week. And I only did my first week there. But what I actually did, and again, this was other fortuitous thing in my life. I actually took a leave of absence from my job. I was an activity director at a retirement home and I went to culinary school. It was a raw food culinary school. So that was kind of cool because that was a really fun experience that I might not have had. So yeah, that, that I didn't really have a big community at that time, but I was building community, you know, back then, you know, it's like, you know, I don't even think we had meetup back then, you know, so mm. I just remember just getting involved in any organization or, or, or with any group that I could that was like minded. And even if that mentions vegan, that that's just so much better, in my opinion. So but yeah, I mean, I fell off. I mean, I, 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 mean, I fell off the wagon, but I relapsed or whatever, you know, after like a couple of years, I just I went back to evil cooked food. I don't think cooked food is evil. But I remember the whole time. I was raw. I kept thinking about was this Greek pizza that they sold at this vegan restaurant, Native Foods. I mean, I never stopped obsessing about it, but I don't obsess about food anymore. That's the other thing. And, you know, I work with people and it's very heartbreaking with people that are addicts and people that are really trying to, to change their health and struggle. I don't struggle anymore. See, the, the thing is, is you can look at the exterior and say, wow, she lost all this weight and she looks good and all that kind of stuff and she's healthy. But for me, the best part is the freedom from the obsession. Because when you're an addict, your whole day, your, all your energy is spent on, on when you're going to get your next fix and what will happen if you can't, you know, like in my mind, like, well, what if, you know, that what if the 7-Eleven at Violent and Ventura is out of Coke Slurpees today? What am I going to do? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, and um, I, I remember say days so bad that like I, I, I couldn't even drive to 7-Eleven and I'd have to send my husband and, you know, he was the enabler, you know, thinking back now, that you know, to get it for me. And I remember when it came time when we actually had money to buy a home or a condo, the most, a lot of people, when they buy a home, they'd say, well, what's the best school district? What's the, you know, they look for things like that. For me, it's like, where can I live that is walking distance to a 7-Eleven? I'm very serious. So that when I wake up and can't drive and Charles won't get me my fix, and, and that's the truth. So I found this place in Studio City that was literally walking distance between to two 7-Elevens. I mean, when we think about that, that's really sad in a way. Yeah, it's cr it's crazy how we can create like a whole mapping in our brain that is around addiction. So in order for you to make this lifestyle change you had to have remapping that like and we know we can change the brain which thank god we can change the brain what were some things that were there any mindful techniques or anything that you did to when those impulses came up to not practice following through with those yeah. well, well I learned so much at the afternoon health institute and also I was so clean my you know I was so clean that like like you say it's like it's, it's sort of like you know when you when my dog gets her bath it's like I just am so careful where we walk I just don't want her to get dirty I know she'll get dirty again but at least no not for the first you know few days and that's how I actually was for quite quite a while and so one of the techniques I used was substitution which you know uh, people use that in addiction all the time so like I've heard people say we don't really ever overcome an addiction. We learn to manage it, and often we have another one. So a lot of times, you know, you'll see people that go to prison and they'll become very religious, for example. That's their thing. Or people that um, lose weight, now they're avid exercisers. So, you know, for me, it, it, I seem to like things that are really cold. 
not not anymore. Now it's like I like every, every beverage warm. But like, what would the the Coke Slurpee in the morning was something that it, it 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 energized me in a fake way, but it's what I felt. I said, this is something that's giving me energy, and it's really cold, and it's really sweet, and it's really delicious. So what can I substitute that's healthy? And so what I started doing was smoothies, because a smoothie is delicious. It's cold. It's energizing. And so that's what I started in that I changed that ritual of a cold, sweet, energizing morning beverage to a smoothie. It was a fruit smoothie from Jamba Juice. I didn't have a Vitamix at the time. And then I kept upping my game and it's like, well, what's the next step? Well, so instead of a fruit smoothie, how about a green smoothie? Well, at first I couldn't do green smoothies because when you're as toxic as I was on the inside, you don't want to think you want as kale or green vegetables. But I was able to put a little cocoa powder in my green smoothies, the ones with spinach, and those tasted pretty good. And, you know, I just kept upgrading my choices. And then it became a green smoothie without cocoa powder. And then instead of uh, smoothies, it became actually eating the vegetables. So I think, I think you know, when people look at me now and they read my book, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, it looks like I was an overnight success, but I was an overnight success that took 52 years in the making. There were steps, and, and, and I didn't have a program to transition to. I found my own way, and it took a long time. So for other people, I say there's ways to do this faster if you want, but just because you can't do everything, please don't think you can't do anything because any steps you make towards optimum health will be good. So, yeah, it, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's been quite a ride. I, I almost can't believe I was that person. You know, I don't even think I've been in a 7-Eleven in 12 years because if you're not getting a Slurpee or a, or a I mean, what do you get at 7-Eleven, you know? <laughs> I know. You know, that technique, the, the way you were describing it reminds me of um, how BJ works with like athletes, let's say if they're injured, right? If they're injured and it's like end of days, right? They can't run. It's the worst thing in the world. He'll ask them, okay, let, like, let's zoom out. Let's, let's pull back a little bit. What do you love about, I, you love to move your body. You love to feel fit, right? Like you loved something cold. You loved something sweet. So if you can pull back and have a more expanded perspective, then you can just see the more general qualities of what it is that you really like. And so maybe it's crunchiness, maybe it's saltiness, um, you know, so maybe that's pickles, right? Like you can start zooming it out and get those general things that you love about it. And that will help that substitution process. I did it with desserts as well. So I learned that I can make any dessert that anybody else could make, not only vegan, but without sugar. I could, I could date. See, I had never had a date and not a, not a, like a social date, a date, like the food. <laughs> I didn't have very many dates though, because unfortunately when you're obese, you don't get asked to your prom, but I never actually had eaten a date until I was 43 years old. And like, they are the sweetest thing in the planet. They're amazing. They're, they're as sweet as sugar because they are 70% sugar, but it's mitigated by the fact that they're a whole food that also has water and fiber and vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals and antioxidants and micronutrients. And I was able to figure out how to make any dessert, whether it was German chocolate cake or peanut butter chocolate pea cheesecake, without using sugar, oil, or salt, and just by using dates as the sweetener. And so I use dates as methadone to get off white sugar. I mean, now those desserts that I made, I, I can't, I, it's probably been over 10 years since I had them. They would probably be way too sweet for me now, but they still fill a, a place in a need for people that are trying to get off white sugar because 
I just think it's so much better to eat anything from a whole food than from a processed food. And when food has actual nutrients from whole foods, even if they're calorically dense, like nuts or dates, you you actually have the fiber to mitigate the absorption of all those sugars and you actually feel full. So so I, I think, like you say, substitution can work really well for people. The thing is, is the more... The, the more they're deeply addicted, sometimes they don't want to make that switch, you know, because it doesn't necessarily give them as quite as much of a high at first. So people do have to be patient and take time to what we call neuroadapt. And but once you do, it's not a problem until you go back to your old environment with your old friends and your own your old unsupportive husband that refuses to eat the crap foods out of the house. I mean, it's just it's it's a tough thing. It's a very tough thing to 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 get people to stop eating things that are making them sick. How do you, so you work with a lot of, um, you work with a lot of people on transitioning um, in their diets. Like, how do you meet them where they're at? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you not get frustrated knowing you have the answers? Oh my God, I get so frustrated and I am not the best coach. (laughs) I mostly time affirm to people like Dr. Doug Lyle or Sharon McCray because I do get frustrated because see, I understand that saying, meet people where you are, but I, I'm such a forward thinker. I like to meet people where I see they they could be. Mm. And so I have a hard time with, you know, especially because addicts are such babies. And I say this with love in my heart because I was too. It's like they have every, I mean, like addict and excuse-atarian, they're like almost the same word. They have, oh, you know, I'll start tomorrow. I'll quit smoking. You know, I, you know the favorite favorite day of the week for an addict is someday because that's when they're gonna do it. And the thing is, is the road to someday leads to never. My mom was morbidly obese. Oh yeah, after the wedding, you know, there was always, you know, I'm gonna do this when something else happens and nothing ever does. So I get enormously frustrated because if I was in any other business, I would be out of business because my failure rate is so great because most people can't get out of the pleasure trap or overcome the addiction. So, you know, the best I can do is set an example and then with the people that have been successful, shine the light on them and offer information. That's really all I can do. And, and I, I, I can't do it for the people. That's the thing. And there's so many factors at play that make it more or less difficult for people. So many of them, you probably loved, if, if he'll even do podcasts anymore, Dr. Doug Lyle, because he explains how your personality can affect whether or not you can do things in life. It doesn't mean that you can't if you don't have the right personality, but whether you're conscientious and or not can affect how easy or hard it is for you sometimes to do things. And this is a very hard thing to do because solving the problem of the pleasure trap, we aren't designed to solve because the environment has changed. We haven't changed as humans for a long time, but we evolved in an environment of scarcity. And now the whole world is a 7-Eleven. People's glove compartments are like 7-Elevens. We live in this society where junk food is so prevalent, unhealthy eating is the norm, that it's very hard to do something different and to, to go up against, like I said, the social pressure. It's, I mean, think about it. Look at the food that's served in hospitals. You would think that in a place where people are trying to get better, you wouldn't feed them the same food that got them sick in the first place. Why is there McDonald's in the lobby of children's hospitals all in like the United States. You know, prisoners, school children, people in nursing homes, the people that, first of all, everybody can benefit from good nutrition, but it almost seems like the people that could benefit the most are the ones that have the least access to the healthy food. Yeah, my dad just had a pacemaker. His heart rate dropped to like 30 beats a minute and like he was on his way out. 
And he went to the hospital, they got him to the hospital and he had a pacemaker put in. And after the surgery, I talked to my mom, you know, how's he doing? Oh, he's good. He just had a brownie Sunday. And I almost fell over. I was like, I got to meditate. I mean, I just felt so much rage come up. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He just ate a brownie Sunday. Like he just almost died two days ago. It, and they're just, you know, and then of course, like he, they starved him for two days because they didn't know when the doctor was going to be able to put it in. So they like kind of kept him alive, <laughs> starved him, put the pacemaker in, and then and gave him a brownie, brownie. Sunday. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't think that's healthcare. Yeah. I just don't think that's healthcare. <laughs> they don't teach medical school students very much about nutrition, if anything. And hospitals, like any other business, it's is business. business. And so, you know, they get contracts from certain companies to sell the things like, you know, you go, I don't, I haven't been to a, you know, a sporting event at a school for a long time, but I remember, you know, Domino's, Coke, you know, these are the ones that give money for the uniform. So, yeah. you know, we can't be bashing their products because they're the ones that are giving us the money. There's so much, so, there's so much, that's the thing that really bothers me. And, and again, Marion Nestle from the, you know, the, who talks about the politics of food talks about this is that, the thing is, is the, it, the, it's the money. That's the thing. It's not about caring about people or their health. It's these are cheap crops that are subsidized by the government. You know, you ever have you ever turned on the television and seen a commercial for kale? I have not. Yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. There's there's no money in in broccoli. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been talking a lot about food and the consumption of food, and um, and we understand that hospitals are a business, but let's talk about a business, which we've already mentioned on this podcast, True North, which is a business that is making a difference. And we just had, by the time you launch, um, we had the uh, wonderful Dr. Goldhammer on, and he'll be launching actually next Monday. Um, just such a... Oh my God, such an amazing guy. And uh, we've been playing with fasting, but True North is not always about fasting. Like you no, don't have to go fasted. there and not eat. Are yeah. you kidding? I worked there part-time for 10 years and I went there as a patient and didn't fast. And yeah, he's one of my true heroes and mentors like Dr. Doug Lyle and Dr. Uh, John McDougall. Everything I know about health and nutrition, I learned from all three of these gentlemen combined. And True North is amazing because if I had heard about it before Optimum Health, I, I might've gone there. I just, I, I don't think the internet even existed at that time and it was early 2000 or if it did I certainly didn't have a computer or or email but you don't have to fast at True North although if you have a very serious disease like you know heart disease or diabetes or autoimmune disease a lot of people do fast for that reason but where weight loss and food addiction comes in is everybody lose weight will lose weight fasting even even, I mean I remember Dr. Esselstyn went there and he fasted and he said his bones were clanging together he was so lean so everybody that will fast will lose weight but you put a lot of the weight back on once you start feeding of course but where, where it really helps with food addiction is that one of the reasons it's so hard for people to eat healthily is because they really don't like the taste of healthy food. And that's because their palate has been so adulterated and assaulted by years of abuse of eating foods that are high in sugar, fat, and salt. And so when somebody water fasts, this process of neuroadaptation can happen very quickly. So even after a short fast of a few days, 
when they feed you, I think the first thing you get is is like a, a juice that's like part fruit and vegetable, and then maybe you get watermelon juice. I don't remember the refeeding order, but one of the first foods they feed patients after a fast is just steamed zucchini. And after you haven't had sugar, fat, and salt and all that stuff for a few days, and they feed you real food, it actually tastes really good. And so that can be the benefit for somebody that's struggling with the pleasure trap, whether they have weight to lose or not, is that by a brief period of fasting, it doesn't necessarily have to be water fasting. It can be juice fasting too, because when you fast on juice, they give you four to five juices a day. It's 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 a combination fruit and vegetable generally. You're still taking away the sugar, fat, and salt. I mean, that's the natural sugars in the fruit. And you can reset your palate very, very quickly so that whole natural food tastes good. And that's the whole idea because everyone wants to be healthy, but not everybody is willing to pay the price. And once you get over that hump, the food tastes really good that we eat. It just doesn't taste good. When you're used to eating McDonald's cheeseburgers, you know, sweet potatoes and broccoli does not taste very good. But like thinking about McDonald's cheeseburgers, that that makes me feel sick. Yeah. Thinking about <laughs> thinking about broccoli okay. and sweet potatoes, yeah. that sounds excited. delicious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, but for some people it'd be like, think about vegan pizza with, you know, vegan cheese and vegan pepperoni. Some people would get excited about that if they're been ethical vegans for a long time. But oh in yeah. General, that sounds people, good. Well, people, most people prefer the taste of sugar, fat, and salt in yeah. large quantities, and that's for survival because we needed those calories in the Stone Age and our ancestors needed them. And you know, we didn't get it from processed food though. We got, you know, we got our sugar from fruit. And if if berries tasted sweet, we knew they were safe to eat. And that's why, you know, even breast milk, for example, tastes sweet. So sweet means, hey, we're, you know, we're going to survive. And salt we need, it's an essential nutrient, keeps us from, you know, dying of dehydration. But we didn't get it from the salt shaker or from processed food. We got it from eating grains or vegetables, which most people don't eat very many vegetables. And fat we got in terms of things like nuts and seeds and avocado, animal products had fat, but we, these were treats. These were seasonal foods. We didn't, we didn't eat a lot of them on a daily basis, but when we saw them, we would gorge on them. So we're genetically hardwired to prefer the taste of sugar, fat, and salt for survival. But the problem is, and it's the, the two authors that we previously mentioned, Michael Moss and Dr. David Kessler, they discovered that the processed food industry also knew this. And so they hijacked our brain chemistry for profit by creating foods that were much higher in sugar, fat, and salt that ever existed in nature that would hook most people to their products. And they did do this deliberately. And I think they need a big old class action lawsuit slapped against them because they're, they still do it. And and the thing is, is most people don't even know that they're addicted because everybody else is eating these foods. So how can they be bad? It's so powerful. My goodness. Like, <laughs> I just think we just did a, we just had a trip, um, up to a big event in Utah and, um, and see and a bunch of athletes there and just the, um, the access to the food, um, that was available for the athletes was not of high quality. Like it was of convenience, you know, and, and longevity of how long this food would be preserved. It just, it blows my mind that, um, we can get away with that, you know, and that, and that humans as, you know, as high achieving athletes would, would, you know, celebrate, you know, the, the gift of being able to move the body in a, in an intense way, fall back on food. That's really just going to keep adding inflammation, um, to their body and not, um, and not keep their vibration high. I just, it just, it's so tough to, 
to comprehend. And so, you know, for us, we always leave, you know, the venue and we go do our own thing. But for the majority of things, we're just reinforcing this pattern, this habit. Yeah. Well, that's why they got to see the movie Game Changers, for one. But yep. also think about it. Even even Olympic athletes, many of them didn't succeed because of their diet, but in spite of their diet. Yeah. And I love that we're seeing more and more of these athletes excelling. I'm seeing it a lot in, in younger professional triathletes that are, you know, coming into the sport and making a name for themselves on a, a plant-based diet. But even like on the way home, we were driving home on Wednesday and we stopped at this, you know, gas station because you got to put gas in the car. And I went inside and inside the gas station convenience store is like a full-on restaurant, I don't even know what kind of burger joint it was, but it's got the Impossible Burger. And I saw that at a couple of these different convenience stops that we made. And I'm thinking, okay, it's great for the animals, but it's not, this is not health food. Yeah. It's not health food. It's, it's highly processed foods. And, um, like you said, it's really addicting. And what I didn't real, I never realized, you know, the, oh, what is the word I'm looking at? The deliberate the deliberate efforts that companies make to addict you just enough. And I learned that in Salt, Sugar, Fat. I think that's the name of the book. And it opens up, I think, if I remember, I read it a long time ago, but it opens up, like one of the first chapters is talking about kind of this boardroom where they're, you know, getting the bliss point. They're figuring out what the bliss point is to addict you just enough. And that just kind of freaked me out. Yeah, it, they, they want to figure out the exact combination of sugar, fat, and salt that will addict the average person to their product. And that's why, you know, even things people say they love, like McDonald's French fries, which have sugar, fat, and salt, if they put too much salt, you wouldn't like them, or too much sugar. They, they, that's what they do. They do these focus groups. I remember in college, I didn't do it for McDonald's, but I remember being hard up for money like 40 years ago and having to do these focus groups to make like, you know, 40 bucks was a lot when you're in college. And oh, like yeah. I had, you know, I, I drank these different kinds of vodka. I don't even drink alcohol. It was disgusting. But I mean, I, but what I'm trying to say is this is very common. All companies, almost all companies do these. And that's what they're trying to figure out is, is, is that point. And it's really sad. And, you know, I just wish more people would care. But if you care, that, that's the problem. It's, it's easier when your eyes are closed because it's like once you know, then you might have to do something. And you don't want to do it because you don't want to change, so you'd rather not know. Yeah, but we say, like, eventually you're going to hit your sucks enough moment, like sucks you did. Enough moment, yeah. Like you, you hit that sucks enough moment, which the way you described is like the pain of – of staying the same exceeds the pain of changing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so what, as we begin to kind of wrap up our conversation here, what are some of, like you don't have to be an obese junk food vegan to come in and work with you or be a part of your program, right? Like maybe somebody who just wants to get off processed foods or who who's like your... Just and, you know, people I, I that come to you? <laughs> Mostly women that are older because everything they've tried has failed because they have been in this cycle of dieting and restricting and binging for so long. You know, like I said, I, I don't get very many 20-year-old athletes that want to lose five pounds. You know, usually when people have suffered enough, they're willing to do anything even, you know, consider abstinence because, listen, you know... I, 
it's not for everybody. It's very, it, I don't want to say it's difficult because it really, to me, moderation is much more difficult. I think that complete abstinence is, is, is a lot easier than trying to, to do moderation. But I think the concept is overwhelming for people because they say, oh my God, I can never again. And we don't do it like that with, uh, with addiction. It's, not, it's just like with the 12 step programs. It's a day at a time, a meal at a time, a bite at a time. And, it, but again, it just, we work with people mostly in groups because we find that it it helps to see other people that are going through the same thing as you to know that you're not alone, especially because most people don't have the support of very many friends or families because it's, it's hard to be different. It's hard enough for a lot of people just to be vegan in a world where people aren't vegan. So let alone to be healthy or unprocessed or not eat sugar, people think of you more as a pain in the ass than somebody that's trying to help and save the world. Yeah. What are you hopeful about? Like, it's easy for us to say, ah, oh, the companies and the rah, and the addiction and all of that. But what, what are you seeing that you're hopeful about mm. that, that, that just gives you some spark inside? Well, I think I'm hopeful that now other doctors are willing to get on board with this idea that food addiction is real. Because I remember, like I told you 40 years ago, my doctor said, that's ridiculous. You can't be addicted to sugar. But now we have more and more doctors, not just PhD doctors, but medical doctors that are basically saying, yeah, you know, like Dr. Pam Peek, who wrote The Hunger Fix, that like, yeah, this food is addictive and it's not your fault. And so when people understand, you know, it's not their fault that they become addicted to these foods, but if they want to get better, they're going to have to make some changes. I think that that is very helpful because I think what happens is the word addiction is not a word that most people like because I think it conjures up, you know, somebody in an alley shooting up heroin, right? And so the idea, well, we have to eat, how can food be addictive? But it really, depending on which doctor you talk to, it's almost like a, a disorder of dopamine deficiency. And that's why some people are more vulnerable and some aren't. But the fact that now they're even willing to talk about it and consider putting it in the DSM, I think I'm hopeful that people will understand that there's no shame, no blame, that it's a biogenetic disease. Just like some people were born with blue eyes, you were born with this predisposition to have a higher, it's, it's almost like most everybody likes sugar. I don't know anybody that really honestly doesn't. But for people that have food addiction, I mean, we really like it and we like it a lot. And we got to have it a lot. And so it's almost like it, that like I think about the slot machines in Vegas when they go off when you win. So for somebody like my husband, he can have a cookie and he gets this mild response like, yes, that was good. And he puts the box back. But for some people like me, we have a cookie and then we have to eat the rest of the box. And then we're just like, whoa, you know, it's, it's just, it's the way we feel things in our brain. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. It's just that we're genetically different. The problem is though, is many people now are being exposed at a much younger age. So, you know, I see these things and I, I just, I want to start a campaign against smash cakes because kids will eat healthy food if that's all you give them. They really will. I don't care what parents say. If they're eating crap, and if they're picky, it's because you gave them crap too early on, like macaroni and cheese or dairy products or sugar. And then to, to wait till their first birthday and to celebrate by giving them a sugary cake just so they can smash it and put it on their face. I mean, why create a sugar addict that young? You know that at some point that kid's going to be on their own, going to parties, they're going to be exposed. Why would you deliberately expose their delicate brain chemistry and palate at one year old? You can make a smash cake out of mashed potatoes. The kid will have just as much fun, I assure you. Yeah. It's the social, it's it's the social, right? The social pat, uh, history of having cakes and sugar yeah. on your birthday. Like, yeah, that's why there are some advantages to being an introvert. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and just these things that go unchecked, you know, and we know we know way too many. We don't have children um, ourselves, but we know way too many plant-based parents who are feeding their kids amazing food and the kids are gobbling it up and uh, there's no deprivation. Nobody's being deprived of anything, but the ha- the palate is being created in a healthy direction early. So yeah. it's you can do that. It makes it easier than trying to wait till you're 40, 50, and 60 to learn to like vegetables, which is what I had to do. It can be done, but man, it's so much easier if you get that good start. And parents, it's really up to you to to feed the kids the right foods and not feed them the wrong foods. But again, then people, they just, it's just, it, it, to, to think about like a life without sugar, they think it's going to be a life without sweetness. Your life will be so much sweeter without the addiction and the excess weight and the lifestyle disease. I promise you. Yeah. What do you crave now? Like, what are your cravings now? Like, what's your... Puppies. <laughs> I mean, not to eat, though, of course. I mean, I just, I, I you know, I, I have a little dog, and I just, every time, I just, I love animals so much, but I just, I mean, I wish I could just fill my house with puppies. That would be, like, the best the best thing in the world, and I don't know, but I don't crave, you know, I don't know, that's the top of my head, I crave puppies. But, you know, it's funny, because I, I, this is interesting, though, when it comes to food, I, I never thought I'd say this, but I crave savory now. And after 43 years of mostly sugar, it's not that I don't occasionally, you know, have, you know, something that's made with a date or, or like fruit. I do love fruit, especially in summer, things like watermelon and cherries. But when given a choice now of savory or sweet, savory always wins. And that was never the case with me. So that, that's kind of, you know, interesting that, 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 that I would like that better now. So yeah, I, I crave sweet, savory over sweet. I love it. Anything can change. Like we can, Mm -hmm. these brains and Mm -hmm. these bodies are so resilient and we have more power over our health than, you know, than we're led to believe. And there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that are leading us down these these paths um, to dis-ease. But I think the most important thing is to just being, you know, have a relationship with ourselves. How do we feel? You know, are we lethargic? Food should not make you lethargic. It's fuel. It's fuel. It's not your best friend. It's not your answer. It's fuel for yeah. the body, you know, and, uh, and this body will experience decay over time. So the best that we can do to slow that down, the better. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think the difference now is that like, in the, using the title of Dr. Joel Furman's book, I, I live to eat now instead of eat to live. And I have many more things that I'd rather, I mean, I do eat and I enjoy it, but my life is so much richer without sugar. And there's just so many more things I'd rather be doing. Lately, I've gotten getting into jigsaw puzzles. I don't know why. I think I heard one of the neurologists say it helps prevent Alzheimer's. But man, having that addictive personality, I could like, I could go like probably three days without food trying to figure out where that last piece goes because I get so, I get so, you know, intense. I like figuring it out. So, but I do, I have a lot of fun and I do a lot of things that don't involve food. So that's, uh, that's where I'm at now. So quite a journey. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you found your way out and clearly it has become, you know, your, as we would, as us yogis would say, your dharma, you know, your, your role here and you're playing it so well and so vibrantly and just, you know, you're living the demonstration and that's all we can do is live, live the demonstration. We can lead them to water, but we can't shove their head and make them drink it and hold it because we'll hurt them. Um, You can lead a kid to kale, but you can't make them eat. Right, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Chef AJ. It was such a pleasure to talk with you, and I know our audience is going to take a lot away. Oh, thank you very much. 